1: Welcome to Go Green Radio, everybody. So glad that you could tune in. Today is going to be a great show. We have three subject matter experts to talk to us about whether or not our relationship with our coasts—and that's across the country and around the world—if that relationship is sustainable. Back in November of 2017, the Aquarium of of the Pacific, which is located in Long Beach, California, held a really interesting forum called "Satu Umi in the Anthropocene." Now we're going to find out what that means. That may be a a stretch of phrases that we're all unfamiliar with. We're going to dig into that and talk about things like integrated coastal management, some case studies in success, and our guest today couldn't be more perfectly positioned to give us the best possible information on this. Dr. D- Jerry Schubel has served as the president and CEO of the Aquarium of the Pacific since 2002. Dr. Michael Orbach is a professor emeritus at Duke Go Duke, and uh, Dr. Fawcett is on faculty at the University of Southern California. Here in California, we just say USC, but since there's another USC on the East Coast, I need to make sure everybody knows which one we're talking about. Well, Dr. Schuber, we're going to start with you. Welcome back to Go Green Radio. We talked to you way back in February of 2016 about what it takes to be a climate resilient city, and today we're going to be discussing the report that went along with this forum I just mentioned, um, and the report like the forum is entitled Satu Umi in the Anthropocene and to begin with I'd like for you to help us understand the meaning of the word Anthropocene because I think this might be a new term for many of our listeners
2: Thank you Jill, it's good to be back with you. The Anthropocene is the most recent geological epoch. It's the one we're now in and it it marks for the first time in the 200 to 300 thousand years of human history where humans are altering Earth processes, phenomena, and ecosystems on a global scale. And the global scale is is very important. It, It, of course, includes climate change, but much more. It includes the hydrologic cycle, the nitrogen cycle, and more. The Anthropocene has not yet been officially recognized as a new geological epoch. But the recommendation has been made, and there's some debate over whether it began. Some people put it back to when we discovered or created agriculture 10,000 years ago. Some people put it at the start of the Industrial Revolution 200 years ago. And many people put it even more recently, some, some as recently as 1970. In order to be a new geological epoch, it has to be marked in the geologic record. And the two markers that have been proposed for the Anthropocene are radioactive fallout from nuclear testing. And the second is a very interesting one. Chicken bones. Uh, mm. Chickens are the most abundant bird on the planet today. And just imagine on Sunday, Super Bowl Sunday, how many new chicken bones from chicken wings we will add mm-hmm. to the geologic record. So it's it's the epoch we're in now in where we are altering Earth processes and phenomena globally.
1: Interesting. Uh, Dr. Orbach, if you could help us understand the Japanese term sato-umi, and the report in the forum also talked about a Hawaiian term, and I'm going to butcher the pronunciation, so I hope you can help me. Uh, Ahupua. I'm sure that's not correct uh, But this also the term Integrated coastal management These ancient cultural practices And modern practices Are critical to our understanding Of the conversation today So if you could help us out That would be great
3: Sure uh, Beginning with uh, with the sato-umi uh, Sato-umi literally means a Village sea uh, And it has a companion term Satoyama Which means village mountains Uh, It's the idea that human communities who uh, reside in uh, coastal areas have a responsibility to maintain traditional ecosystem services uh, and conservation across the land, sea, or the coast mountain boundary. Uh, There was a great example at the meeting from a town called uh, Akeshi in eastern uh, Hokkaido, Japan, where uh, deforestation had caused uh, on land had caused significant impacts to the uh, to the ocean to the nearshore uh, ocean in particular the aquaculture and fishing industries and what happened was uh, starting with the fishermen uh, the the fishermen and the community started to get involved with reforesting the land to repair the damage that had been done to the ocean from the land so the point is it's crossing the tension the crossing the land sea boundary Pawa'a, which has a glottal stop in it, uh, <laughs> is a thousands of year old philosophy uh, from uh, from the Hawaiian Islands that uh, emphasizes, first and foremost, that people are part of the environment. There is no land, there is no sea without the people who are there. Uh, which is very interesting because we often treat humans as separate from the natural environment. But in the ah- ahupuaa concept, people are very much an integrated part of the environment, and it, it, it the management system under ahupuaa had uniform governance over the land, the adjacent ocean out to the deep water, uh and up to the mountains. And in fact, there were the ahupuaa themselves were. Uh, sections of the island and the sea that were governed uh, uh, together. So there was a single uh, person, the Alihi, the chiefs, who uh, mm-hmm. governed each of these Ahupua'a and really had control over everything on the land and the sea, and everything was managed together. Now, integrated coastal management is the modern version of this in, in industrial society, and its strictest definition is that it's management that is intended to cross government levels, so international, federal, regional, state, local, uh, to cross agency boundaries, the Department of Interior, Department of Commerce, uh, the Department of Defense, which all have different uh, areas of responsibility, to cross the land-sea-atmosphere boundary, because different agencies often have responsibility for each of those spaces. And frankly, in the science area, to cross cross-disciplines to have both natural and social scientists and physical scientists working on the issue together. So the point of all three of these is to connect the governance of the land, sea, uh, and the atmosphere.
1: Interesting. Dr. Fawcett. Talk to us about the goal of the forum that was held um, at the Aquarium of the Pacific um, in November. What does the aquarium and and its sponsor for this event, the Honda Marine Science Foundation, hope to achieve with the report that we're going to be discussing today? Well, I think
4: the the important uh, thing to understand in the beginning is the role of the Aquarium of the Pacific. The the Aquarium of the Pacific uh, in Southern California is... Uh, a kind of marine mini-university. Uh, it's not just an aquarium. It's also a place where where all sorts of people come together to discuss issues that relate to the marine environment. And uh, uh, Jerry Schubel has uh, has created this, this kind of mini-university there, and as a result of that, um, it's not just school kids coming to look at the fish, but it's programs for adults, uh, in the area to come and learn about the marine environment and in and the coastal environment. So that was the, the, the that's really the origin of um, uh, of a, a lot of these programs, such as Sato Umi and the Anthropocene. Um, the the main objective of this is to spread information. Um, uh, the Aquarium of, of the Pacific acts as a disseminator of information, a creator of information and uh, a, uh, uh, acts as a hub for marine information in southern california it also cooperates just as mike was saying it, it also cooperates with other um, marine uh, uh, aquaria and research, uh, research universities in the area to kind of bring the information to the public sometimes um, universities uh, can uh, uh, suffer in terms of bringing their information to the public they're real good at trading information uh, among themselves and within themselves with students. But the outreach to the public is sometimes difficult. And the Aquarium of the Pacific is uh serves this function of of uh, making the information available to the public and also making it interesting. And so um, that was the that, that that's sort of the theme of the aquarium in, in general. But in this particular case when we talk about uh coastal management and we talk about issues of uh, coastal water quality. Uh, th- this was the notion of talking about Ahupua'a and Sato Umi is a perfect way of discussing the role of mankind dealing with the coastal environment. And so mm-hmm. that was the overall objective. And I think the Honda Marine Science Foundation uh, saw this as an opportunity to bring some ideas from Japan. And then also um, the ideas from Hawaii uh, in, into greater relief for the citizens of Southern California. And uh, s- speaking of that, I mean we obviously have a, a long and very heavily used coastline. So this is a this is a perfect place to discuss uh, these kinds of issues.
1: Absolutely. And the report that's associated with the forum highlights a number of case studies. And Dr. Schubel, uh, if you would, tell us a little bit about the Chesapeake Bay and how the lessons learned from that coastal area can be applied elsewhere.
2: Well, the Chesapeake Bay is my favorite estuary. It's where I started my scientific career many years ago. It's sometimes referred to as the queen or the mother of all estuaries, Because it's so large, it's North America's largest estuary, one of the largest in the world, and the ratio of watershed to receiving waters is larger than any other estuary. The watershed includes parts of six states, New York, Pennsylvania, Delaware, Maryland, Virginia, and West Virginia, and all of Washington, D.C. And there are more than 150 major rivers and streams in the watershed that drain into the bay that carry input from hundreds of thousands and probably millions of nonpoint sources of pollution. Water quality is, in the Bay is dominated by what happens in the activities, It happens in the watershed through human activities, particularly agriculture, and increasingly uh, the growing population, which now numbers more than 18 million people. And urbanization, suburbanization, and the release of nutrients, particularly from agriculture and from urbanization, take the biggest toll on the Bay. And the watershed is a great integrator of all of human activities, and then those are transferred into the Bay. And the Bay waters are renewed over a period of of about one year So you put a lot of things in, and before you replenish that water, it's a long time. The Chesapeake Bay, the study is what led to the National Estuary Program. We've spent more than twenty billion dollars cleaning up the bay, but in the most recent.
1: I want to talk about that in great detail. And we're going to have to take a quick commercial break. But when we come back, we're going to pick up right where you left off so that we can go into great detail on this. Folks, don't go away. There's much more Go Green Radio right after this.
0: Voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 472 5787 VoiceAmerica.com. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26 percent, 43 percent, or 14 percent?
5: Conservation starts with us. Learn about environmental concerns each week when you tune in to Our Wild World with host Ellie Weiss.
1: Welcome back to Go Green Radio. So glad that you could all tune in. And if you've just joined us, let me catch you up. Today, we're talking with Dr. Jerry Schubel, Dr. Mike Orbeck, and Dr. Jim Fawcett. And we're talking about a big question. Is our relationship with our coastal areas sustainable. And that is something that is a very complex question, complex answer. But before the break, Dr. Jerry Schubel was talking about a case study uh, involving the Chesapeake Bay. And uh, Dr. Schubel, I want to give you a chance to just pick up where you left off and continue talking to us about this case study.
2: The establishment of the National Estuary Program, where estuaries around the country have been uh, organized for these different studies to maintain or restore them and their ecosystems. And we've spent some $20 billion cleaning up the Chesapeake Bay, and there have been improvements. But in the most recent of the annual report cards that are issued, the bay received only a C grade. And it's a very tough job to clean up a system this complicated with this many sources of of input. And so I think one of the key messages that I take away from the Chesapeake Bay, and I hope that Mike Orbach will pick up on this, is that it's better to try to keep a system in good condition than it is to try to rehabilitate one that has serious problems that have accumulated over decades, in some cases centuries. And I think another lesson is that Ab- in these large complex coastal systems that don't flush very rapidly, that have heavy populations, we may very well have to settle for sea grades going forward.
1: Wow, that's you know, that's hard to accept because we love our waterways. But uh, there there is a path forward and some of these case studies really highlight that. Doctor Orbeck, talk to us about the Albemarle uh, Pamlico estuarine um, study that you that you wrote about in the report and some of the lessons that we can apply to other coastal areas?
3: Well, one of the, the, the uh, I'm going to call it the APES study, a Pamlico estuarine study, A-P-E-S. The APES study was uh, unique with the first round of these uh, national estuary programs in that uh, the, the coast and the watershed of North Carolina and Southeast Virginia were um, there was a lot of development in Southeast Virginia, but in North Carolina, the the sounds there was very little development in the in the coastal area. So a lot of the damage uh, you saw in the Chesapeake had not been done in North Carolina. And when we, <laughs> North Carolina Virginia, tried to argue for the program, people said, "Oh, go away! We've got Boston Harbor, we've got the Houston Ship Channel, we've got these terrible things. You guys are fine." And our mm-hmm. argument back was, "Wouldn't it be nice to get it before it goes downhill?" And the federal government, Congress, bought that argument and funded the program. Uh, and in fact, uh, of, of the some 151 recommendations that were made out of the program, uh, virtually all of them were implemented to very good effect. But the last point I'll make is that there were 151 recommendations, and it actually took a decade to get them all in place after the study was done. So these things don't happen quickly.
1: Right. And, Dr. Fawcett, talk to our listeners about the Tijuana River and estuary and what can happen when two nations have trouble working together on the environmental management of a shared area.
4: The, the uh, Tijuana, River estuary, uh, uh, Tijuana River and its associated estuary are uh, the contrast to, uh, for instance, what Mike was just talking about. Um, the estuary itself is located in the southern, southwestern most portion of the United States, um, but it, the, the drainage basin, the watershed for the estuary, extends both into northern Mexico, into Tijuana, and also into uh, the coastal area behind it to the east of uh, the estuary itself in the U.S. The problem here is that uh, it because of, of it, land development practices in Tijuana, where uh, they are, they are, it, it is a obviously a, a, a developing nation. And as a result, the land development practices do not include uh, the kinds of things that we accept as normal, stormwater management, uh, adequate sewage plants, et cetera, et cetera. So as a result, what happens is the stormwater and untreated sewage, uh, to some extent from Tijuana, then flows down the Tijuana River. It crosses the border and then comes into the estuary. And the estuary suffers from lack of good upstream management, both in, both in uh, Tijuana and then it, it causes uh, uh, the United States, and in, in, in this case, San Diego, and the federal government the the need to uh, manage the damage to the estuary. It's a perfect example of how integrated coastal management is, uh, this is the kind of problem that integrated coastal management is designed to ameliorate. In other words, good communication between both parties. It's not an unusual problem. I mean, these cross-border um, issues and not just international borders, but sometimes even state borders. Interjurisdictional management of the coast is difficult. It's exactly what what uh, Jerry was talking about with the Chesapeake Bay. The the example that Mike gave uh, from North Carolina was the, the one of the most important aspects of that uh, uh, enterprise was good communication, forming good communication, and what we have in. California and and Mexico here is a lack of good communication, um, a lack of money. Um, what the the Tijuana River Estuary needs is good stormwater management practices to be developed in Tijuana, and that's up to the Mexican government, not up to the U.S. government. So mm-hmm. it's a it's a communication issue, and it, which is what. Integrated coastal management generally is. It's about good communication that results in good planning.
1: Mm -hmm. Well, and we see that happen, you know, within the United States all of the time, even, you know, in our inland waterways when in the southeast you have downstream states suing upstream states for (laughs) pollution, water pollution that's coming down from agricultural runoff and other things in the upstream states. So this is definitely not anything new, um, and we still don't seem to have a, a perfect solution. Dr. Schubel, uh, Anthony Bernofsky contributed an important case study to the report that I'd love for you to discuss. He talks about the San Francisco Creek Watershed. Talk to us a little bit about why this case study was an important piece of the forum and of the report.
2: Okay, I think it was a very important part of the forum because it provides us with a great opportunity to apply the Sato Umi and apuaa concepts. It's a small system; it's rel- relatively uncomplicated compared to the ones we've already talked about. Much of it lies within the Jasper Ridge Biological Preserve, which is owned by Stanford University. So management becomes more practical, practicable. And there's a, there's a significant amount of scientific information available. And what's causing the issue now, or, or the opportunity, I think, is that the Searsville Dam, which was built in 1892, formed behind it Lake Searsville. This is all within the, the preserve. And after a lot of years, sediment has been captured by the dam, and now the, the lake is essentially filled up, and you have to make a decision. Are you going to dredge out the lake and perhaps place the sediment downstream to nourish sediment-starved wetlands? Are you going to demolish the dam, which would release the sediment in one big flush? Are you going to demolish part of the dam to allow sediment to flow downstream more slowly? All of these alternatives have consequences to communities downstream along the creek and in the adjoining San Francisco Bay. And, of course, you have stakeholders that favor every one of these alternatives. Mm-hmm. So I think this provides a great opportunity, particularly for graduate students, to work with decision makers on applying the principles of sato Integrated Coastal Management, apuaa in a real-world application. So I think mm-hmm. this is, is one that's a great, great opportunity that I hope Anthony and his colleagues will seize.
1: Mm-hmm, absolutely. And Dr. Orbach, talk to us about the Upper Newport Bay Nature Preserve and this issue of public land ownership. I found that really interesting in the report.
3: Sure. Uh, Newport Beach, my hometown uh, down in Orange County, uh, uh, south of Los Angeles. Uh, the Newport uh, Harbor and its, its river, this the San Diego Creek, uh, formed a beautiful little estuary, one of the many, many that used to be on the west coast of the United States. The beginning in 1900, Lower Newport Harbor, the part you drive through on Pacific Coast Highway, was really bulkheaded and and dredged and and developed to to quite a high density. They now call it the the the, the Riviera of California. Uh, and on the other end of San Diego Creek, uh, a couple of miles up, the city of Irvine developed with the University of California, Irvine, and really degraded the upper part of the creek. But between those two were a couple of miles of beautiful little estuary that were kind of out of sight, out of mind to people. That was beginning to be developed in the 1960s when a local group of citizens, uh, calling themselves uh, Spawn, stopped polluting our Newport, uh, got together and said, we need protect and preserve this this beautiful little little estuary here the upper upper bay and they eventually raised the money uh, rather than trying to convince the current owners to, to you know regulate them out of business on on conservation they said you know what we're going to buy them out and so they raised the money as much what nature conservancy does often and they bought the property and donated it to the state and the county and now it's a lovely little uh, protected estuary with uh, with a, a, a visitor center, with a science center, uh, lots of, of use of uh, kayaking and, and uh, uh, walking and boating. So it's just a great example of what a committed group of citizens can do, uh, not to regulate an outcome, but to do it through change uh, of, of ownership of the environment.
1: It's so interesting, and I know that you know there are uh, nature conservancies uh, and, and different groups that do that across the U.S., and even with uh, forest land that's happening, and it's such an interesting way to, to deal with the issues of, of nature uh, preservation and conservation. We've got to take a quick commercial break, but when we get back, we're going to be talking with our three experts about, okay, these are the case studies this is where we want to get to in terms of integrated coastal management, but how do we get there? So don't go away, folks. There's more Go Green radio right after this.
0: News. Opinion.
1: welcome back to Green radio I'm so glad that you've all tuned in and I'm thrilled to have our three guests here today talking to us about this concept of integrated coastal management and dr. Fawcett for you you know we've we have kind of set up the the we've teed up the issue and we've talked about some case studies of success and and some of you know where we could be doing better in some areas um, to have a better integrated coastal management policy but I uh, I I don't have a sense of just how urgent the issue is. How urgent is the need for integrated coastal management public policy in the United States?
4: Well, interestingly enough, um, we have been doing uh, coastal management in the United States for quite a while. Um, The federal government, uh, Congress uh, 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 enacted the Coastal Zone Management Act in, in 1976, the Coastal Zone Management Act provides funding and guidance for states in doing coastal management. Now, it's not always done the way we would envision it in integrated coastal management terms, but every coastal state, including all the Great Lakes states, and that includes states like, you know, Minnesota, Wisconsin, Michigan, Ohio, Indiana, they all have coastal management programs. But the design of the federal funding and the, the federal program is to set general rules at the national level and then allow the states themselves to implement um, their coastal management programs. Mm-hmm. So we have vastly different coastal management programs um, from uh, the version that we use in California to Hawaii. Hawaii is much different than California. Uh, states on the East Coast are different than Than one another, and it gives the states the opportunity to design a coastal coastal management program that fits the needs of their environment. Um, And so, in a way, we we talk about integrated coastal management as if that there is one one form of integrated coastal management, and that's not true. Integrated coastal management uh as envisioned uh years ago uh, uh, in the uh earth summit uh was a, a it's a style of management but it it's not a it's not a recipe there isn't any such thing as one style of integrated coastal management what it what it encourages and i think mike said this earlier is communication that's the issue is communication cross borders it doesn't actually mean that we are are taking over an uh, 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 adjacent jurisdiction, it means communicate. Let's talk about it. Let's work out our differences. And that's, that's really the basis of ICM. So mm-hmm. um, anyway, I, I hope that helps because it, it, the, the notion sometimes can be lost that you know, that, that this, is, this is not a formula necessarily. It's a set of aspirations.
1: Mm -hmm. And that is, that's an important distinction to make. And and I think that's very helpful. Dr. Schubel, the report discusses two issues that policymakers are going to need to deal with in order to, you know, reach a a higher level or an improved level of integrated coastal management. And the first one is to inspire us to recognize the integrated value of coastal land and waters. How do you foresee policymakers accomplishing that?
2: Well, I think one of the reasons we have these forums is to inspire the public, because if we have a public that's inspired and that is aware of the importance of managing land and water together in a unified way, then I think our policymakers will will follow. We've already heard that the difference in, from the United States versus Japan and the Hawaiian Islands is we don't have that deep cultural tradition of managing land and water together. For the most part, as you've heard, that those activities fall within different governmental agencies. So I think engaging more of the public in discussions about the benefits of Apuaa integrated coastal management, And some of the lessons we have learned from the National Estuary Program, that may move us in the right direction. And as as Jim just said, a lot of this is about communication, and you can never over-communicate on these issues because they're controversial, and there are a lot of different opinions, and you have to stay at the table long enough to surround the issues and look at different alternatives.
1: Mm hmm. Totally agree. And Dr. Orbach, the the report mentions a second task for policymakers uh, in a section in the report called The Way Forward. And that second task is to develop a means of managing the economic and social disruption that loss of valuable coastal lands will impose on individual landowners, businesses and coastal communities. Talk to us about what that might look like.
3: Sure, and this is where the rubber meets the road, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Uh, all of the estimates by the uh, Intergovernmental Panel on, on Climate Change, the U.S. government, most states and academic institutions, are that seed levels are going to rise up to two meters, if not beyond that, six feet over the next hundred years. Mm. Right now, many coastal communities in the United States have water up in their streets at what they call king tides, the seasonal high tides. Much of our coastal property and infrastructure is going to be underwater in 100 years. And this means the city of Miami, the city of Houston, that even though it's an hour's drive from the Gulf of Mexico, as you saw in the recent rains, is only two feet above mean sea level. Mm -hmm. This is going to be the most significant Human impact on infrastructure. Uh, impact on infrastructure in human history. Now, if you want to see what it would look like, I would encourage all your viewers go to uh, just Google sea level rise viewer, and you'll see a number of websites that will enable you for almost every community in the coastal community in the United States to visually see what it's going to look like. Not if, but when the sea level rises due to climate change. I would encourage your viewers to see what's going to happen, mm-hmm. what will happen in the next hundred years.
1: It's pretty striking, and, and I, I do think that's a, a very important exercise for people to to do and to, to check that out, because... It's shocking, and it's not just that city streets will be flooded. There's a lot of important infrastructure for energy transmission, for wastewater management plants. I mean, there's just so much critical infrastructure on our coastal uh, shores at this point, and that is going to be quite devastating. Uh, Dr. Fawcett, the report recommends something that I think is going to be pretty hard for people to hear, but I'd like for you to help us digest this statement from the report. Following every major coastal storm, our goal should not only be to get back to, quote, current normal as quickly as possible, but also to move ahead to the, quote, unquote, new normal that looms on the horizon, which itself will be a moving target. Help us wrap our heads around that statement.
4: Well, this is difficult. Uh, This is difficult for us all to to deal with. But uh, the coast is the coast, the climate, and the weather consequences of the climate are are dynamic and they change. And on, what this really addresses is that especially we have made, it goes back to just what Mike was saying about infrastructure. We've made infrastructure choices. We've made land use choices on the land side that involve a, a huge economic inputs. And, We've assumed that the coast will remain the coast as we see it today. That's not necessarily true. And the, as a matter of fact, climate science says to us it's not going to be true. Things will change. Well, there it's, if we have coastal flooding of a, of a significantly greater extent than we have now, there are going to be huge economic impacts of that. People are going to have to move... Businesses, infrastructure themselves away from the existing coast to a new location. Now, fortunately, we believe we have uh, decades to work on this. But as we've already seen it, it, in, with the King Tide um, uh, example, there's already flooding in some communities at King Tide periods. And when people have made huge economic investment, Living directly on the coast, we see what happens when you know the um, superstorm Sandy uh, destroyed so much. For instance, not only housing but businesses in the Northeast, folks. It the the climate is going to change, and it's sort of like watching, uh, in some respects, watching a slow speed train wreck. Um, but we have time to move out of the way. That's the important thing. If we talk to one another, and if we engage our government in the notion that this is, we have to make preparations, then we can adapt to this. But, uh, doing nothing is not a choice these days. We Mm -hmm. have to address these issues. And that's why we wanted to discuss this in the context of Sada Umi and the, and, uh, Ahupua'a.
1: Exactly. And Dr. Schubel, the report states that we have the tools and the knowledge to do this. We need to apply them. This is a design problem, and it requires design thinking and scenario planning. Talk to us about some of the tools to which the report is referring.
2: So before I do, let me just add a footnote to what Jim said. We are, as we said, in the Anthropocene. We're going to be in the Anthropocene for as long as there are humans on this planet. And so bouncing forward applies not only to coastal flooding. It applies to wildfires, mud slumps, because we're living in this new normal. Now, Mm -hmm. I think all of this requires that we reframe our relationship with nature, and the emphasis here is on the coast. And instead of being so preoccupied with restoring, we should be preoccupied with creating the coast for the future not the coast of the future but the coast for the future that is a design problem and some of the tools are scenario planning which are probable pathways to the future design thinking marine spatial planning other geospatial school school tools and human ecology we have a lot of the tools, and uh, it's a, it's a difficult to change because we've built and invested in all this infrastructure during a time of relatively stable sea, sea level, and that's no longer the case. So we have to begin to design for the future.
1: Right, and I know that the report talked about some of the NOAA tools and other you know things that, that scientists have at their disposal. Uh, talk to us as the lay people of the land, about what those tools can do.
2: Well, I think, again, you have to think about what kind of, of future we're going to have and then how do you design the coast for the future to be in sync with processes and sea level rise at some future date whether it's 2100 or 2050 and the tools that I mentioned scenario planning uh, geospatial planning uh, marine spatial planning human ecology all of those are tools that we have in our tool kit so we're not lacking tools we're lacking the ability the willingness the political will to apply those tools and then design for what they tell us we should be doing
1: Well said. We've got to take a quick, quick commercial break. But when we come back, we have so much more. So don't go away, folks. There's more Go Green Radio right after this.
0: Streaming live. The leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com.
1: Welcome back to Go Green Radio. We have been talking intensely about our need to plan our coastal areas for the future. And Dr. Orbuck for you, what role should the populace play in moving forward with integrated coastal management?
3: In Washington, D.C. a couple of years ago, and chiseled in stone up high on one wall, was a quote by Margaret Mead, famous anthropologist, cultural anthropologist, who said, never doubt that a small group of committed citizens can change the world. In fact, it's the only thing that ever has. And I think that's quite true. And what this emphasizes, though, is the important role of getting information to people, people, their governments, their industries, so that they can make informed decisions. And that's one of the big issues right now, of course, because although... Most of our federal agencies, in terms of the civil service people in the agencies, especially the science agencies, most of our states and cities and towns and most other countries in the world are actually moving forward quite rapidly with trying to plan for uh, the changes that we're going to see at our coast and with climate change generally. Uh, We unfortunately have certain members of our federal administration who uh, are either uh, uh, willfully or not ignorant of uh, much of the, uh, of the science that, uh, that's available to us now. And we need to make sure that that doesn't happen. We need to make sure that people have the information they need, uh, scientific and about their own governance systems, to be able to make these decisions in the future. The good news is that almost everybody, except for a few people in the U.S. federal government, are on board with
1: this. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, one of the things that's uh, perplexing for a lot of today's students is that there seems to be so much they need to know in order to succeed in the 21st century. There's so much emphasis on STEM. Uh, You know, we know that we need to be civically engaged, and that takes another knowledge and skill set. And I just wonder, you know, Dr. Fawcett, from your perspective as a faculty member at USC, do you think our nation's colleges and universities are adequately preparing the next generation of the populace for the role that they need to play in this important issue?
4: Well, I think what's happening is, I, I know from my own students uh they are very interested in these issues of uh the land sea interface and and how we can make uh, the best use of our coastal resources and protect them as well the problem is that the 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 academic curriculum is very focused on our common needs in this these environmental services these environmental goods belong to everybody and as a result uh, it really takes government to adequately manage them and also to help uh, uh, help us uh, do a good job in resource management. Uh, the problem is that the students are committed. There are a lot of good students who come through these programs at colleges and universities throughout the U.S., but the funding to actually implement policy, to implement these environmental policies, generally is coming... Um, it's coming from the states to some to some extent, some states better than others, but a, a lot of the funding in the past has come from the federal government because they're resources that all of us as Americans own. You know, the, all these environmental resources are owned by all of us in common, and the federal government over the over uh, a period of time here has been more reluctant to devote funding to good environmental management. And that's what's needed. So as a, as a result, students can get the education in in environmental issues, and the students generally are very, very committed to it. But as far as implementing their commitment in terms of jobs, uh, that really requires on funding out, uh, to be available out there. And' that's, that's often what's missing. Uh, we probably can use we will be needing more people to focus on some of these coastal issues in the future, Um, but the, the academic programs are doing a good job. It's just the disconnect between the commitment and the interest and the devotion of students and then the reality of finding employment in the field that they've chosen.
1: Sounds like we need to get the uh, the science majors and the poli sci kids together, so that we can we can kind of do a one two punch here um, and make sure that the kids that are going into to the political realm, be it elected or staff, uh, that they're on board. That they understand <laughs> what, the environmental yep.
4: issues. Yes. Yes.
2: Yeah. Absolutely. And and I I think that's a very good point. We need to bring the natural scientists together with the social scientists. We need to bring them together with the the public and, and the policy makers, because these all fall into the category of what are called wicked problems. And mm-hmm. you can't solve a wicked problem. But if you formulate it correctly, and if you surround it and with the, all the different disciplines, because they're transdisciplinary in nature, then we have some chance of managing these problems to keep them within bounds that in terms of what the RAND Corporation characterizes as minimizing regret. If we can mm-hmm. minimize the regret of the Anthropocene, particularly the sea level rise, then we will have accomplished a great deal.
1: Mm-hmm. Dr. Schubel, I'd also like to talk, uh, talk to you about some of the ways that the Aquarium of the Pacific, in, in specifically what you guys are doing, um, and I know you're also part of the California Ocean Science Trust and the California Ocean Protection Council, what you're doing to prepare policymakers and the populace to meet the challenges associated with sea level rise.
2: Well, California Ocean Science Trust and the Ocean Protection Council and also the California Coastal Commission and also the National Academies have done a number of important studies of sea level rise. And and they've done a good job of summarizing how much sea level might rise and what the uncertainty is that depends to a large extent upon how successful we will be at reducing greenhouse gas emissions and how the loss of ice from Antarctica and Greenland will will, uh, play out. And our role at the aquarium is primarily to take these findings and to reformulate them in ways that will engage and educate and empower the public. So that's what we focus on.
1: Mm -hmm. Well, and it's, it's interesting you use the word educate and empower because we've seen throughout, you know, maybe 30 plus years of lots of different ways of trying to infuse environmental education into schools that, education doesn't necessarily lead to action. And often that missing component between the two is the bridge of empowerment, that the knowledge is such that You know, people can actually get up at a city council meeting or a county board of supervisors meeting or even go to a committee meeting of the state legislature to advocate for action. And that's something that's a big, big uh, bridge to get over for a lot of folks. And so I think the more that we're able to allow people to talk it through in a safe space It it might encourage them to get up at the microphone of some of these public policy meetings and do what needs to be done. Um, And and so, Dr. Schubel, given that, you know, we have just a, a little bit of time left on the show. What are some of the big thoughts that you'd like to leave with our listeners before we sign off today?
2: I guess my big thoughts are we are in the Anthropocene. We're going to be in the Anthropocene for as long as there are humans on this planet. It's filled with challenges, but challenges also are rich with opportunities. And we just need to reframe these and begin to plan and design for a higher standard of sea level, more frequent, more intense floods, coastal storms, etc. cetera. And, and I'm convinced that we can do that. We have the tools, and if we can educate and empower the public, I think that we can make this a bright bright future.
1: I believe that too and that's so well said you know that there's hope for the future as long as we remain committed not just to minimizing our regret, uh, like the RAND uh, folks would say, but minimizing human suffering, because that's the thing that a lot of us need to embrace, that there will be human suffering if we do nothing or if our, what we do is inadequate. I want to thank you all so much for joining us on Go Green Radio today and thank all of our listeners. We're going to be here same time, same place next week with more Go Green Radio. Until then, have a wonderful week and do something in your life to go green.